Well, hello, everybody. This is uh, Chris Floyd, the First National Bank in Syracuse, and I'll welcome you to our very first inaugural DreamMaker podcast, kind of what we named it. We'll think maybe change that as we go. But, uh, you know, this winter we started a series. We called it Seven Steps to Ensuring Your Farm Survival. Well, we had everybody from uh, Dr. Art Barnaby talk about farm program payments and, you know, how do you make your PLC ARC selections this year? And uh, ended with Dr. David Cole talking about topics. And then in between, we had several, uh, you know, use Zoom to bring in a lot of different people uh, from ag economists to uh, mental health, soil health experts to kind of try to provide kind of some information to help our producers be as successful as possible. So it's kind of interesting, you know, when Dr. Cole was coming, the uh, I think it was the first part of March and just right as that coronavirus deal was starting, and uh, and then a lot has happened since. So part of our goal was this is to help help provide our uh, producers information and uh, here specifically on grain marketing and how we can, uh, you know, in the busy time, how can they uh, keep up what's going on and all the changes we've had in the last 90 days. So with us today, we have uh, Kevin McNew. He is the chief economist for Farmers Business Network and also Walt Beasley, who's a um, <coughs> excuse me, he's a. Um, Trying to think, what is your title? Well, can you, you kind of assist farmers in uh, grain marketing decisions, kind of on a personal basis, I guess you would say. Um, yeah. Official titles, farm market advisor. So yes, my job is to help farmers uh, execute on the plans and recommendations that Kevin comes out with. Yeah, and so uh, it's kind of been fun here at the bank. We've got to know Kevin and Walt over the last few years. Walt for a lot of years. Um, uh, I think I actually remember playing basketball against Walt in high school. Uh, but uh, so we've known Walt a long time and has really done a good job helping farmers make decisions. And, and then also getting to know uh, Kevin, a uh, lot of expertise on the grain markets. So we'll probably start with Kevin. Um, kind of what's you see right now in the big picture, what's going on in the grain markets and um, and where we're at kind of paired. To, you know, a lot of things have changed uh, since this winter and spring and just outlook. And uh, what do you see going on there? Yeah, absolutely, Chris, and and thanks for having me on. You know, I usually this time of year we're on the road, and uh, you know, last year we were there in in Southwest Kansas enjoying our meetings with farmers. So coronavirus has definitely changed not only our workflow but obviously the market. So uh, you know, it's been a challenging couple of months since COVID outbreak, especially as it relates to corn. Uh, other you know commodities, you know, beans and and wheat in particular have kind of not had a, a huge impact from COVID, but corn is one that's certainly in the crosshairs. Um, you know, as we're kind of, you know, seeing the, the economy start to, to improve, we're seeing in particular ethanol utilization, ethanol production start to come back online. It's still a, a fairly healthy discount from where we were pre-COVID and where we are normally this time of year. So, you know, we're still going to see a, a fairly sizable loss. Probably somewhere around 10% of our annual use of ethanol will be curtailed as a result of this COVID. Uh, and then, you know, the, the real issue will be, is there a second wave? You know, does the economy sort of normalize? Things like that. Uh, but as it relates to corn markets, it's it's been a, a huge challenge. In, in the wheat environment, you know, we had pretty decent prices there. Um, you know, a couple months ago, we saw July, July, Kansas City around five dollars. You know, we at FBN, you know, we're, we're pretty, um, pretty aggressive around that. We're 70 percent sold on wheat coming off the combine right now. And, and you know, now we see prices down in the 430. And, you know, again, I remind producers that 
that wheat is a dogfight in the world market. You know, we are we are one of many uh, exporters that have to compete for for that demand business. And so, what really is going to be impactful in the next couple of months is what's going on in the EU, what's going on in uh, Russia, and you know, there are some chinks in the armor in the EU. Uh, Russia is you know doing reasonably well, so there's nothing that I think probably catapults us back up to $5 wheat prices. I think we're probably looking at the mid $4 on the board type of wheat prices uh, in the near term. So that's that's kind of where we're at. I think, you know, it's it's probably a situation where prices are not going to see a huge upside potential here in in the coming uh, months or, or year probably. Yeah, that's kind of a, you know, it's kind of interesting too, watching the markets and, and especially, you uh, uh, you know, to me, a lot of times, you know, oil is energy grain is energy. It's just what kind of energy are we powering? Um, whether it be actually, you know, food for growing cow or people and, or, you know, you know, energy for cars and, and stuff like that. So it's kind of amazing how tight it is together. And, um, what's your thought on the volatility, you know, especially, you know, I think everybody got shook up that one day when oil went, you know, the contract exp- expiring contract went, you know, so far negative. Um, do you think some of that's kind of settled down and, and, you know, as farmers go through or think the market's kind of prepared enough, we'll avoid some things like that going forward or what's your thought? Yeah, that was, that was, a, a an eye opener, wasn't it? When you see the price of crude oil go negative. Um, you know, I, I do think we're past that point. I mean, I think that was kind of an alarmist sound of the market to say, we think we're going to run out of storage space. You know, un- unlike corn or, you know, where you can store it on the ground or, or certainly bag it up, you know, crude oil has very, very fixed capacity for storage. And so we, we ran into a market environment where, you know, there was really big concerns that, that there was going to be no space for, for storage. And, and that's what drove the price negative. Um, as we move forward, you know, today we're seeing WTI, uh, West Texas crude trade 35. It tried to peak up above 40, but, you know, I think probably 30 to 40 is is a fairly happy equilibrium here in the coming months until we decide, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, I don't see us returning back down uh, to those deeply discounted lows. I mean, speaking of negative, um, you know, Chris, you're in the banking sector. I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on interest rates. Obviously, interest rates have have pummeled. Uh, you know, early on in the COVID, there was talk of negative interest rates from the Fed. Do you think that's real? You know, what are you seeing on the finance and, and interest rate side? You know, it's kind of interesting. You get a lot of questions like that. And, you know, before this happened, you think, well, I would never see negative interest rates. And, and you know, there's just so much, especially when you see them, you know, most of those European government debt come, you know, you see a lot of negative rates there. And I think even some of their uh, stimulus deals actually loaning money to banks at negative rates. Um, uh, you know, a lot of what I've seen, I think the Fed just wants to avoid that because um, I think um, there's a lot of other negative consequences. I think when you think what could happen by uh, pushing rates negative and um, but they're obviously really low. Um, it's amazing, too, how fast they got low, especially compared to the, you know, the credit crisis in 08, 09 and and then, and amazingly, how much uh, money uh, the Fed put in so fast. Uh, uh, I saw one deal, and I'm going to be a little bit off on my numbers, but, you know, the amount of stimulus the Fed used, I think, that they did in like seven or eight weeks uh, this spring took them uh, two, three years to do. 
Um, and they did it in like two or three times the amount. And so uh, just amazing how much um, stimulus they put in there. And I think they've been pretty good. It's amazing how they've kind of moved the markets, I would say, or I guess I shouldn't be amazed at it because uh, they can print whatever they want to print. But, um, you know, almost single-handedly the other day turned the stock market from a, I don't know if it's down five, down, down five, 600 points to closing up just because they said, we're going to buy some corporate bonds. Right. Um, You know, one thing, Chris, I would, I I would love to kind of banter with you a little bit on, on that. I think, um, you know, and, and I think you're right. We have, we have taken on a lot of debt and, and increased the deficit here as a result of this financing. And one of the consequences of that, I think longer term and you're hearing more rumblings of this, is does uh, this degrade longer term um, the U.S. dollar as kind of the currency of choice? You know, the, and, and that's important for agriculture because agriculture, you know, we're so, we have to be so cost competitive. And, and as the U.S. dollar has strengthened in the last three or four years to really lofty levels, it's created a huge backdraft for us in agriculture because our exports are that much more expensive. So, you know, I, I'm really sort of watching this unfold with debt levels escalating. Uh, does the greenback, the U.S. dollar greenback basically not become the currency of choice? Uh, does our debt, um, you know, expose us to a weaker dollar, which would be, you know, not good for the U.S. economy in general, but it would be great for agriculture where we've had <laughs> such a strong dollar environment. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh there's always a lot of give and take there. I think, you know, cause I'm kind of like you, it's like, you know, weaker dollar sure helps our exports. And, but you know, a lot of it, um, uh, it's always kind of compared to what a lot of times I think, cause you think about what we're like here versus, you know, other countries and, and, you know, we're, you know, cause they're doing a lot of the same things we are. So it'd be interesting how it shakes out, especially comparatively, you know, how much debt, we incur in this and trying to get through the crisis versus other countries. And um, that's kind of just a neat, um, uh, I'll say it's hard to live through an experiment, I guess you would say, but to see what each country does different and then how, you know, looking back, you know, what was the best thing you could have done. And uh, so that's always going to be interesting to see how all this plays out for for the most part. But um, how do you think the, uh, you know, talking about, you know, the coronavirus and, you know, what the government's doing, how does that, what do you think, how the, you know, the, uh, the CARES Act programs through USDA, um, how do you think that's impacting uh, how producers are marketing? And then do you think, are they going to do anything, do you think anything will happen for the 2020 crop? Because um, it seems like that's going to have more damage to that crop than, than really what they've taken care of so far. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is. Um, I, I think we're we're in for kind of long term impacts um, from the COVID. So uh, you're right; the government did step in quickly, uh, issuing these these farm payments, and, and that's you know no doubt helpful. That that is is exceptionally needed and helpful uh, to our farm financial situation. And you know, I, I think it's just one of those things we have to. You know, the way I look at markets and especially this situation is, um, you know, we need demand to come back. Uh, but also, even without, you know, even without this COVID crisis, we very much had an oversupply problem. You know, we have not seen major droughts anywhere in the world. We've had 
little micro droughts here and there uh, that have given us a little bit of cut in overall world supplies. But we haven't seen widespread massive droughts in any sort of major growing region, whether it's the U.S. or South America or Russia in the better part of, you know, seven or eight years. So in some in some sense, the weather has been pretty decent and, and it's challenging to, you know, get these markets rallied when we have year upon year of really, really good production. I mean, Walt, you know, I, I guess, you know, maybe that's the, the, the problem is in, in, you know, Southwest Kansas, uh, they're feeling the effects of weather this year. I mean, we had the the freeze event. Um, you know, how's the wheat looking down there, and what do you think the yields are going to turn out to be? So far, the wheat harvest has progressed into to Southwest Kansas, and, and it's moving further north. The yields I'm hearing are, are slightly better than expected, still uh, below average. But I think as they move further north, we're going to see more of the freeze damage, and when the hot, dry winds hit. The farther north, they were still in the fill stage, and I'm at least estimating that the yields won't hang in there as as, as high. And then you go out west uh, into eastern Colorado; there there's some definite problem spots. Uh, but most of the producers I've talked to thus far have been very pleased with the yields coming off the combine. Um, and I, like I said, they used up all the subsoil moisture that they had, so I. Not sure what it's going to mean for this fall if we're going to see wheat acres drop just because we're not we're not going to have the moisture to plant into. Um, I can make you the argument that you may actually see wheat acres increase just to have a cover out there, and USDA will look at wheat acres as wheat acres. I mean, sure. it doesn't matter what it, why it would be going in. Do you think there was much um, you know tilling up wheat and planting milo? as a result of the freeze damage and the dryness? I do know of some of the wheat got hayed. I'm not sure there was that much that um, got plowed under and went to a, to a row crop to corner milo just, just because of how dry it was. There, The wheat would have already used up all the moisture that was available and lack of moisture, you know, you wouldn't plant right back into there. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, are we too. are we cutting uh, north of I seventy yet? Or uh, I'm sorry, um, I forty on um, in Kansas yet? Or uh, we're not to I seventy yet in Kansas. I mean, South Central South Central would be getting close. I think uh, you know you would, should start seeing some around Salina. Uh, I mean, any day. But it, yeah, it, it's kind of a inverted V the way. It, moves up through Kansas, hit South Central, um, mm-hmm. and then Southeast, Southwest Kansas, and kind of keeps following North. But this is the earliest harvest that I remember. Uh, I talked to a producer at church on Sunday, and he said he remembered harvesting on June 10th in Southwest Kansas one other time. He couldn't remember what year it was, but uh, <laughs> this is pretty much precedented how early the crop's coming off. Gotcha. Yeah, I think uh, it's kind of surprising. Some of the wheat, uh, you know, I'd be interested to see what the yields are around here because some of it looks better than what you would anticipate for how dry it's been. And um, there just was kind of a couple little showers that kind of, I think, got along, got it going a little better than what you imagined. But um, but there are a few areas that where that freeze damage, you know, I think it's pretty localized, you know, parts of, you know, different counties where it's just 
most of it got killed with freeze. So it's, and like I say, if it were, it would have rained, I think you would have seen or a lot more better moisture. You would have seen a lot of mono go back in behind it, but um, we just didn't, we haven't gotten that moisture yet. So kind of tough. Well, Walt, uh, when you talk about uh, advising farmers, you know, um, and I think Kevin mentioned the FBN recommendation is to be 70% sold on uh, your wheat crop as it comes already, I guess, as it comes off the combine. What are, when you visit with uh, producers, uh, how do they manage, you know, kind of the estimate? Because it's always kind of a, I guess, always um, one of my uncles always says, uh, Fairbanks and Morris is the best test for what your yields are versus going to look at it. But, uh, you know, as we get to that point, what do you think is the best strategy for that wheat crop that's coming out right now? A lot depends uh, if you're able to store it or not. And also the cash flow needs coming into wheat harvest. Typically uh, most producers need some cash flow. So in those cases you want to try to get out early and sell as much of the crop that you feel comfortable with. You know, when, Kevin in, said 70% and the first thing farmers will ask is 70% of what, you know, I could, I'd get a hell storm and it'll be zero. Or if we would have picked up those rains, I would have had 65, 70 bushel wheat. And you have to play the averages to some degree there and look at each farm individually. If you're well diversified over a wide area, typically a hell storm is not going to take out the whole farm. But if you have just a few acres of wheat and it's all in one spot, you know, that's a little bit different scenario. So back to the cash flow piece of it, there are some carries in wheat. Um, and especially what we're seeing in southwest Kansas, we have a little bit of protein this year. Not sure what that protein premium is going to be. Um, South central Kansas, they do not have any protein. I've heard one report of eight and a half pro. So that means the mills are going to need some protein at some point to blend up. Um, but the spring wheat, you know, we, we're Minneapolis spring wheat is trading almost at par with Chicago. It keeps flirting with uh, going inverted and not. But anyway, spring wheat, uh, there's enough out there to be able to blend and get to the flour protein that the mills are looking for. So um, if you're going to store it, store the high pro. Uh, and roll the dice. I mean, it protein always has some value, just depends on how much. But uh, each individual farm is unique from that cash flow standpoint and storability. So I, I'd hate to put a blanket, you know, this is a how it will work on each individual farm out there. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Or, go ahead, Kevin. Walt, I, I was just going to pick your brain i mean um storing it in the elevator and paying storage fees you know what what are you hearing on rates for storage you know good bad indifferent on whether that's a good strategy for farmers this year i'm not a big fan of stored in the elevator because typically you know storage rates i mean they, they vary a little bit say four or five cents i'm not sure you're going to be able to capture that amount of carry uh, between now and then, and if there's a cash flow need, um, my preference is is if you want to to own it, I would rather go ahead and sell it and reown it on the board if that's possible. Yeah, I I would agree. I mean, I think um, 
you know, A, we don't see basis levels all that week. I mean, we've certainly seen years recently where where HRW basis is pretty weak. Um, so the basis improvement is probably not as strong, even though, the like you said, protein could be. And then, you know, the board spreads are not that wide either. So it is, I, I think it is a a year where you really want to weigh pretty heavily whether you want to put it in in the commercial hands and and pay those storage fees. Yeah, it's kind of another made me think of another question. Like, uh, you know, one of the things I think it really happened with the ethanol, kind of how fast they shut down, and you know, some plants totally closed. I think the ones around here, I think, mainly kept open, maybe at reduced capacity. Um, how did that? Do you think that affected the like available storage? Um, just because of all the, you know, corn really slowed, the pipeline slowed, I guess. Did that, do you see much effect of that? You know, we're not seeing too much now, but I, but I think you're exactly right. I mean, our, our carry out levels for the end of this marketing year are going to be pretty high. Um, you know, one of the things we watch at FBN is not only just the flat price, but also the spreads. You know what? What are the board spreads going to do? And we really think that corn uh, is not at a spread that it needs to be at, given the state of where stocks are going to be. You know, at harvest and what they're likely going to be at the end of 2020. I mean, we look for we look for corn spreads right now. Um, you know, Dees to March, for example, is trading about 12 cents. We look for that to widen out to 15 to 16 and. You know, likewise, going down the down the pipe, you know, these to, you know, if you want to store all the way out to summer, so these to July, uh, you know, we expect another eight to 10 cents of upside on on that spread. Uh, and that's important, not only if you're a spread player and, you know, you're looking at that, but how do you hedge your grain? You know, your futures and options trader and, you know, really, I think the weakness is going to be in, say, the Dees corn contract where, say, the deferreds, the, the you know, March, May, July's will again because we think the spread's going to widen. Those contracts, while they will get pulled down with these getting pulled down, they won't get pulled down as much. So, it, you know, in these lean environments, you know, having a futures and options account, you know, using that strategically to place your hedges in the right contract, uh, using it to roll. So, you know, we're telling farmers, you know, hedging the D's, for example. Uh, when we get to September, October, and, and the full weight of this effect of you know three billion bushel carryout is felt, we're going to see those spreads widen. If you still want to store that grain, uh, you know roll that hedge out of Dees, roll it into you know March, May, or July, where you're going to get a better trade. So you know it's the little things like that in a really tough environment that can help add you know another nickel, maybe even another dime to your bottom line. Okay, so let me ask a quick question to follow up just to clarify. So, like, you know, with the narrow spreads today that you mentioned, or you think they can, they should be able to widen, and I guess nobody really knows for sure. But so, a good strategy would be to hedge in December, and then as those widen back out, roll it to the actual deferred month that you may actually want to be selling the grain in. Is that fair? Yeah, Is that correct? Exactly. That's that's exactly right. So, you know, just picking round numbers. Let's say you know, Dees corn is three forty, and um, uh, March corn, uh, March corn is, um, 352. So that's, that's the spread of 12. So, you know, if, if the market widens out, then, you know, and let's just pick an example where Dees doesn't really change at all between now and harvest. 
but the spread widens. So if Deese is still 340, but the spread goes to 355, then you're going to be able to roll it into a higher valued March contract at that's you know another three cents higher because the spreads widened out three cents. So and again, you know, if the market falls, you know, you're obviously hedged and you're you're getting that spread as well. So, you know, again, spread play is one way to kind of get that. So as the spread widens, you know, you're you're capturing that by rolling out and and locking in the the relatively higher valued deferred contract. Okay. Why? Wow, that's very helpful there. Um yeah, that that makes total sense. So you kind of just being aware of what the market is at the time and and going. Um, what do you kind of thought as far as like on new crop? How much did you get, or what's your kind of general recommendation on being hedged and uh, or protected, sold, uh, however you want to, uh, to define it? I guess. But. Yeah, I mean we're we're around uh, around fifty percent sold on new crop corn. I mean you know. We were making sales, uh, you know, in the four dollar territory before, you know, before we got the ninety seven million acre planted number and things like that. So, like many many farmers, we wish we'd have sold more before sort of these major events happened. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of farmers that are out there who are, have not sold much of anything. Um, so, you know, I would encourage people to be sort of in that let's call it 40 to 50 percent range even at these 345 prices these are not you know I, I get these are not great prices but we are concerned that we think these corn could potentially go down to the low three dollar range you know what's that gonna what's that gonna take well if we have 90 you know I'll even call it 96 to 97 today it's 97 by USDA but even even if we only lose a million acres in the June report we're still looking at massive corn acres so call it 96 uh call it normal yields 175 or better uh you know call it a weakened ethanol demand you know those three things i think line up to to keep ending stocks for 2020 around you know well over 3 billion bushels and today we're at two billion bushels, so we we can make a pretty strong case that we're going to see low three dollar futures if that's the the lineup we have come fall. So again, I, I know it's not a good price, uh, but we do think that you know making strategic sales here in the mid three dollar range at least gets uh, some of your sales done at at potentially better prices. Yeah, because you, yeah, I kind of get that because you just really don't know. I mean, part of it, I guess, you know, Walt talked earlier about, and I don't be interested what he thinks and what uh, his customers are kind of doing or what their thoughts are. But, you know, it's always, um, you just, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, I had a, oh, uh, we'd learned on interest rates, you know, I can't, uh, I, a lot of people get in trouble investing in fixed income is because they try to guess where interest rates are going to go. And one of the things they always taught us was, um, don't guess where rates are going to go, but know what happens to you when rates do this or that. And I think that's maybe something key for the farmers to understand that, you know, yeah, like you said, 340 may not be good, but it's, if it goes to three, how does that affect me? And versus if it does go up, you know, say something happens and it does get really dry in the corn belt, you know, and we do get a rally. Well, then how does that affect me when I take a certain position? And, so I think it's always important to kind of, and like Walt mentioned before, you know, everybody's situation is a little different. You can afford different amounts of risk, but um, 
What do you think is the mindset of the most producers you're dealing with, Walt, in that situation, or what are they thinking? Well, I mean, one of the key pieces there is if we go to $3, crop insurance is going to kick in. And it depends on what insurance level you're bought to. I mean, it, if you're at 65% RP versus an 80% RP, that, that's a different hedge in itself. But you know, most producers are in that in our area are 70 or 75% RP. So you're 15 to 20% uh, synthetic put right there. So you, you already have some type of hedge on. But if, if the market does finish at $3, and you sell today at three forty. You picked up that forty cents, but if you ride it all the way to three dollars and then go in there and sell, you know all you've picked up is your, is your crop insurance piece. So it's it's important to understand how those two work together and and be able to make the the right uh, hedge recommendation. The other piece that we need to to be looking at for our area is going to be the basis. And you know, a month ago. I would have probably been a little more bearish on basis for this fall um, for both row crops, uh, both milo and corn. But now the environment's really changed. This weather situation, we're, we're not going to have a, a substantial dryland crop in, in a large part of our region, eastern Colorado, western Kansas, down through the panhandles. And so that the end user's going to have to buy uh, a lot more at harvest and the elevators are going to have to compete with that. So I, I start. I would start to see some strengthening. Um, I, I wouldn't get too crazy on where that might go. Just from the standpoint, U.S. We're you know we're talking about a three point three billion carryout for next year, and we can rail corn or other feed commodities into this market real fast. So we're going to be capped by rail replacement. But it, I think it would give us an opportunity. Uh, you can set that futures, leave that basis open if you're going to be delivering in the fall or if you're going to bag it and store it. We could come up with some type of uh, marketing plan to be able to execute because I think basis will appreciate with futures as we get into those deferred uh, months. Hey, Walt, speaking of feedlots, I mean, what are you hearing on you know feedlot placements and you know are they running pretty normal? How, how is that looking? They're a long ways from running normal. Uh, the packing capacity is up back up to about 95%, but that means 5% are still getting carried over, which 5% in a week is is not that big a deal, but it, it's snowballing on itself. So all those cattle that were supposed to get killed in May, some of them got carried into June. Well, now some June cattle are going to get carried into ju- July, and a lot of these packers have went to allotments each feedlot are only get to kill so many head and trying to work through it. But at 95% capacity, you're not making any headway. You're just backing them up further. So a lot of these yards are, are full of finished cattle and some of them are getting overfinished. And we're going to be deep into the year, into the calendar year before we get this all cleaned up. The place placements into the into the yards you know one you have the pin capacity where they're trying to keep as many cows or calves out on grass as possible and and not you know overwhelm it but with the dry conditions guys are going to have to come off grass earlier than they would care to so um the cattle piece of it is going to be interesting Uh, i did hear the local locker 
they're out to uh, a or March or April if you wanted to take a steer in to get butchered at the local locker. So it's backed up those guys too. Yeah, I think our local one is also, you know, booked way ahead. And, uh, you know, they're all usually booked quite a ways, but, you know, a lot of increased demand uh, with that too. So, uh, yeah, maybe they'll, I guess, Kevin, maybe they'll make them use up some more of that corn, extra corn, I guess, we keep those cattle on feed a little longer. <laughs> there you go. That'd be nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've heard some deals where we had some customers were like, I mean, 16, 1700 pound calves coming out of the feed yard, you know, just because they got backlogged like that. So just amazing how things just change so fast. But The other thing that we, I guess we were talking about basis that we, we need to really look at is Milo basis. China continues to step in and buy a Milo. I mean, it's not the, headline news because i mean soybeans is taking all the all the news but they've been buying a ship or two every week and we're already beginning to see new crop milo basis in areas over corn so if we're able to pull all that milo out of our region and export it at a premium to corn that's also going to help us so for those guys with milo keep that in mind there may be some opportunities at harvest or right after to get a better price than corn. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, a lot of times people type, you know, feed energy value difference, you know, is, you know, I think Milo's getting a lot closer to corn, but it's just kind of, it's kind of unique that it's China that's taking it all uh, to use it. But. How do you see um, most of your customers, Walt, as far as like using, what's the, you know, especially as, you know, what the dry it is and maybe like you talk about uncertainty in yields and whatnot going on the, what, is there good options or the way to use options versus futures or, um, how do you think that makes a difference on how the guys can, gals can do a better job of marketing or different strategies that way? First, you need to evaluate the risk tolerance of that producer and, can they stomach the additional risk you're putting on with trading options? Uh, my thing is 90% of the options expire worthless. So you have to have the strategy that fits your operation. If we're at profitable levels and you can just do a straight hedge or do a straight ca cash contract or some type of structured contract, that's always the preferred. But we're in an environment now and moving further away from are break-even prices that we do need to take a look at some of the option strategies just to try to enhance to pick up a few nickels and dimes to get closer to that break-even or even move into a profitable situation. So I would say roughly half of the guys I work with will have a hedged account of some sort, either with FBN or with a, another broker that they've done business with. And, and of those, even a smaller percentage will actually be an aggressive trader of options but options are another tool out there um and but with it it does come risk and being able to understand those risks is, is very important you know walt i might i might add in there and and what options contracts give producers the ability to do even if you don't have a futures and options account you can actually uh, start to take uh, take contracts physical grain contracts that have these kind of optionalities embedded in them 
So with FBN, for example, you know, while I imagine you do some of these what are called structured contracts where they'll have like a floor and a ceiling. Um, so that is implicitly like an options trade, but the farmer isn't actually having to have an options account open. So the nice thing about the options contracts is, you know, you can actually um, not be a player in the options market, not have to mess with the options account and the brokerage account, uh, but actually get the benefits of an option. And just to put a, a context around that, we have, you know, structures in place where a producer can can start to lock in four dollar twenty twenty one corn, uh, even when the the DS futures contract for twenty twenty one is still around three seventy five. So. You know, those are the kind of things that I think, you know, like Walt does a great job of working with our clients on on how do I how do I enhance my return? The market has not given me what I want right now. I can't go out and sell it at the local elevator because the price is just not good. But we can we can build structures that can get you more than the board if you're willing to trade off some things. And, you know, Walt does a great job of sort of working with the producer on that. Yeah, Kevin, I mean, that that's a perfect intro. We have several structured contracts that allow us to 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 be able to tie the options back to the physical grain, and you're not obligated to, to deliver it to a particular elevator. When you're selling it to FBN, it is a cash contract, but you have the opportunity to shop around on basis. And, it, and it's, it's an account that you don't have to margin. FBN is margining it for you. So if you're not comfortable with that piece of having a brokerage account, uh, FBN will help cover it. And yeah, it's, there's numerous different structures out there when you, the, the min max that you were talking about or fence, however, and then you, you know, you can enhance even that one by some type of double up if, if we need a little bit different, uh, price opportunity. Yeah, that's kind of, that's a good point. Cause I think one thing to me that, um, you know, even me as I personally kind of, dabble around in the option futures contract, you know, hedging a little bit of grain that I raise every year. But, you know, the emotion that comes in when you get that call for a margin call is, uh, it's just amazing. You know, there's probably people as they handle it different, you know, I'm sure all uh, producers are a little bit different how they uh, prepare for that. But, you know, sometimes that's the hardest part, I think, is, you know, because you put on a trade, you think of this is going to happen. And then, you know, obviously then something else happens and all of a sudden you get the call and it kind of really affects how you manage those uh, positions. So I think that's, a, you know, when you have somebody else can kind of take that part away from you, I think it gives you a pretty good, um, uh, a really good tool to kind of help make better decisions too for a lot of people. So, so Chris, were you concerned your banker wasn't going to stay with you on that margin call? No. Yeah. I was really worried about that. one. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's one of those deals you think, whoa, that's a good, you know, good thing, you know, uh, good comment. You know, you really got to kind of communicate what your positions are with, um, you know, it's kind of, and it's, you know, of course we didn't see it. We saw it more back in 08, 09 kind of time frame or seven. I can't remember the exact years when it really took off. You know, there was, uh, uh, a lot of new notes being signed across the country, whether it be in elevators or farmers making margin calls because they had really good positions. They got really out of uh, underwater pretty fast. So, uh, yeah, always make sure you communicate with your lender, I guess. So I think it helps having a ag lender that understands, is this a true hedge and, you know, or there's profitable levels because the, 
the worst thing is you get in those margin call situations. It was the right decision, but now there's not the margin money to to ride that out, and you end up lifting it, and it could cost you dearly. Yeah, there's almost like a written rule that if you have to lift because of a margin deal, you probably made the hundred percent wrong decision. I think, or <laughs> or there's bad. It's going the other way most of the time. But how do you? And one thing I always wondered too, like uh, to me, and I think any position, um, and I'll see what your guys's take is that you just, I guess, a lot of hedge positions or may especially maybe the options, especially if you're, you know buying an option, selling an option, whether above or below. Um, to me, the, the, I don't know, how managing those and not just, I mean, I guess there's opportunity as the market moves, it seems like, especially watching them the last few years or any year probably. Um, how do you help guys kind of manage that position? Because it changes, you know, changes in value so much over time. Because um, to me, I guess you just don't put it on and wait till the expires. But I know what your thoughts are with that. I think I think every option strategy has a unique piece that you need to manage to it. But if it, it is truly a hedge, a lot of it gets you wait till that opportunity to either lift it um, or you know for a few cents cover that risk, or you let it expire worthless. Um, as as an advisor, I, I'm not one that will work with producers that want to make a ton of trades. Are they? Are they in there to hedge or they want to speculate? If they're in there to speculate, FBN does have another group uh, in Chicago that can make a ton of recommendations and work with the individual producers um, and and play that um, that side of it. That's not my area of expertise, but we do have those experts within within our organization to to help you make those trades. And you know, it may be couple of trades a week or um maybe you know handful of trades a month but they'll they manage that side of it more than i do okay do you ever see guys actually try to move like say you know you had a you put option strategy on where you had to hire say a 390 put or something like that on do you ever look at trying to roll those down in a market like this or is that um are you better off just hanging on to it, I guess? Yeah, it, it, and that's where you bring Kevin's expertise in. Where do you think this market's going to go? And then, yeah, you could roll those down if you want to um, enhance that opportunity. Um, I, I guess you'd have to look at each scenario. Yeah, and the other thing I'd add, you know, this is where, like Walt's earlier comment about crop insurance comes into play. You know, if if you know we're down at let's say 320 and you've got the, you know a really rich 390 put option that you bought a long time ago um you know so do you think the market's going to go up and and do you now have effective downside protection from your crop insurance so you're exactly right you might you might totally liquidate the 390 because you think okay any price below this my crop insurance going to kick in so i you know i would in essence kind of be double double betting, um, which is not really a hedge position. That's more speculative. So again, I, you know, to Walt's point, it, it really is circumstance based. You know, do you have crop insurance? Where does that kick in? You know, where do you think the market's going to go? And we can certainly help you with both of those facets um, in, in making those decisions. 
And that's probably where it really helps, I think, too, is having somebody somebody like Walt you can go actually talk to and um, bounce ideas off of. Because sometimes, you know, I, you know, I know I can do some pretty good job of kicking out some pretty crazy ones every once in a while. I was like, no, that's not a good idea. But, uh, you know, having that somebody to talk to, I think, could be really helpful, I guess, in times like this as well. Um, you mentioned, uh, China earlier, um, you know, buying Milo, do you think, um, uh, they're going to kind of continue buying what they were supposed to buy, uh, Kevin, in this new, um, one deal? I guess that's maybe a loaded trick question, but yeah, well, unfortunately they're, they're well behind where the, what they've been supposed to be buying. Uh, you know, I think the good news and, and, you know, Give China credit; they, you know, they absolutely negotiated a deal that was market-based. You know, they were allowed to respond to market signals, and the market signals, since the deal was signed, um, was basically buy from Brazil. You know, buy beans, soybeans from Brazil. So they did. They bought a bunch of beans from Brazil. Now the good news is, it's going to be our turn to to capture some of that market. The seasonality of prices in the U.S. versus Brazil it favors us. So we are seeing that upsurge. Last week alone, they bought about 1.2 million metric tons of soybeans uh, on the week. And so, you know, I I expect the business to pick up. You know, Walt mentioned Milo. We have seen a little bit of corn buying as well. So, you know, the other good thing out of China is their hog herd is rebuilding. You know, it was up sharply in May, up about 4% on the month. Uh, It was a big turnaround, even bigger than what people had thought. So, you know, assuming we're getting back to normal, ASF is, is... you know, not a not a done deal. We could still have a resurgence, but they are rebuilding their hog herd. We do expect them to be, um, you know, strong buyers, and and the U.S. is well positioned to be supplying some of that, um, especially as we get closer to harvest. They're going to be, you know, buying our commodities, hopefully in 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 large supplies. Well, that's good because I think that's you know huge part of our. Uh, uh, yeah, being to export those crops, I think are important. So, and then like you say, the way the dollar changes and how we kind of continue to be competitive at different times. So, um, earlier you guys mentioned the 2021 crop. Um, you know, you kind of think, you know, if you take the view, like Kevin mentioned, so if you have a, a potential outcome to where we could have $3 corn today uh, for twenty or December 2020 futures, um, you know, that would necessarily probably would have to somewhat drag the 21 a little bit with it. Um, you know, as we look at the prices today, what's our, what, and you mentioned some of the structured contracts through FBN, what are some options do you think that people could use to maybe start protect that 2021 crop now? Yeah, I do think, um, you know, at least for the next six months, I I think it's going to be, you know, prices moving uh, down and and getting, you know, 20 to 30 cents lower on corn. Um, So, you know, we're 375-ish on um, 2021 corn. That's not a great attractive price. I know people don't want to jump all over that. And I'm I'm not saying you do at that level, but I also think, you know, we mentioned earlier that you can actually layer on some structures now that can lock in uh, $4 prices even with the market so down. So I, I think those are good things to at least start doing some of your bushels there. One thing, and I don't want to, you know, cause a, a you know, kind of a, a, 
pandemic or, or a situation where people think we're going to get it all bulled up. But one thing we could see happening is the weather uh, is shifting more to a La Nina environment. If you you know you hear the, the meteorologists talk about El Nino and La Nina and what does all that mean? Well, the the short answer is it's a it's a pretty powerful. Uh, meteorological trend that happens around waters around the equator. And when we're in El Nino, it leads to certain weather events. And when we're in La Nina, it leads to other weather events. We're moving away from El Nino and moving to La Nina. And we're likely going to be in La Nina probably in uh, our late summer, early fall. Now, why that's important, it won't necessarily impact our growing season too much. Where it will impact is South America and especially Argentina and parts of Brazil. So that has the potential, and I want to emphasize has the potential to cause drought and problems with their crops down there. So I could see that as a kind of bullish catalyst as we get into 2021 or, you know, you know, obviously later half of our marketing year for 2020. Um, but again, I don't want people to just sit on their hands and do nothing. That's a long way away. It also you know, it also depends on the weather actually, you know, living up to that. So, so that's why, you know, I want producers to kind of look at opportunities to try and lock in, you know, $4 prices on 2021, but I'm not saying you need to sell it all, you know, get to maybe 10 to 20% over the next couple months. If we get a little pops here and there that, that we can layer in some structures, but I, you know, I remind people markets are cyclical, weather cyclical, um, and so, you know, I don't think we'll be stuck at, you know, low $3 prices for, you know, forever. And so 2021 is a long way away. Right. Yep. Well, I think that's a good point too, is really, is like, you, you need to, you know, I think what you're, maybe I don't pair, well, what I'm getting out of that. So I won't put words in your mouth, but you know, you, you have to understand what can and may happen. And, and, and usually they're, like you said, they could go both ways and, um, cause I think if, you know, $3 corn was a lot, you know, it's got to go there, then it probably would be there already. Um, you know, I think, but there is things that can make it go up and, you know, who knows what uh, could happen. So I think it's just kind of, yeah, it makes it a challenging time to manage that, but I think you have to kind of be understanding it can go up, down or nowhere, uh, all three and right. it may hit all in the next year. You still know. Well, and I think, Chris, if I could interject, I, I think what it what it means for a producer is to have some discipline and have a a kind of timeline of marketing your crop. You know, you can't just you can't just um, do nothing for a prolonged period of time. Now, hopefully, you've been making decisions along the way. You know, we had the opportunity to sell. 2020 corn at four dollars. We had the opportunity to sell 2019 corn at four dollars, and I, you know, I know everyone wants to think we're going to get to five dollars, but my point is, if you're making decisions that are 10 to 20 percent of your crop at certain times of the year when it's reasonably good prices, then you're not stuck in the quagmire of having to make decisions at three dollar prices, and that's what's my that's what's my fear is is that people are. You know, they haven't been making decisions. And, and so now, you know, they're being forced to kind of, you know, make some decisions um, at, at very unattractive prices. Yeah, and that kind of reminds me, too. I remember Walt maybe was talking once we were visiting about um, maybe marketing plans. And I think one time you mentioned consistency, I think. Is that correct? Um, 
Walt just, you know, as far as having a plan, um, kind of like Kevin was mentioned, does, is, I guess, do you still feel that's pretty important to have a kind of a similar, maybe, uh, maybe you're not, I'm not describing it very good, but having this, you know, kind of a structure, how do you see help farmers get through that? Anything? And when Kevin was talking about being 50% sold in corn, that was following a scenario that he's looking at the timeline that's left in this marketing year. So really wanted to be 50% sold here by the end of June, because that, that acres in uh, stocks report at the end of June can be pretty, pretty volatile. And you want to at least have half our risk off the table. Once you move into that July 4th timeframe and we're seeing pollination happen across the corn belt, uh, if the corn is, remains in good condition, you, you're usually headed south price-wise between there and harvest from a season, seasonality. So when, when Kevin's making those recommendations, he is looking at the, the seasonality trends and how much time is left in marketing that grain. So you know, for 2021, if we can get it $4, yeah, 10, 20% sold, but we're not going to go back in there and make another big sale until, you know, we get closer to planning time. And so, yeah, we try to stay consistent within the time frame that we have to market that crop. And, and I think I see producers over the years try to chase last year's trends. So, you know, when you get that year, the high high prices were at harvest. Then that next crop year, what are they doing? Sitting on their hands and waiting till till it's harvest. And the market may be just the opposite. That's the worst time to sell. But we always have last year in our uh, memory, and that's how we try to market. We're better off taking a look at what our production costs are and trying to make a plan to be able to be as profitable as possible. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Cause a lot of times, yeah, it's almost that kind of recency bias that you kind of what happened. Yeah. Um, and doesn't always quite work out that way for sure. So, yeah, cause a lot of it, you know, I think if, like you say, if you follow that certain plan, you know, kind of, and like a good point you made, there's, there's certain kind of key events that are going to kind of, I want to say be market moving events. Um, as you go, um, in a normal year, especially that, you know, would be planted acres or like you mentioned in July 4th and pollination and things like that are just kind of big drivers of the market or can change things. But, um, yeah, just kind of keeping those understanding of things sounds really good. So, well, as we kind of, you know, it's kind of been a neat conversation. Is anything, you know, as we kind of get ready to finish up, anything you guys like to throw in or kind of comments as we go, uh, maybe Kevin, we'll start with you and, yeah, I mean, I I know it's a challenging environment. Uh, we, we can't paint a, an overly rosy picture. Um, you know, stay positive, uh, get a plan. You know, Walt at Farmers Business Network does a great job in, in Kansas and in, in working with producers uh, around how to manage these risks. So, um, you know, just I, I think, you know, in times like this, it really helps to have um, someone who is objective and, and making you know, decisions out for your best interest. So it is a challenging environment. You know, I, I'm always bullish agriculture. I grew up on a farm in Oklahoma. Uh, so I'm, I'm always bullish agriculture, but we do have to live through the cycles of ups and downs. Yeah, to, to add on to that, the, 
If you're not familiar with Farmers Business Network, the easiest way to find out more about it is just go to fbn.com. That's our website. And if you're interested in learning more about what FBN offers from a grain marketing standpoint, you're welcome to give me a call. Uh, it's a pretty easy number, 544-3400. And I'll be glad to set up a time and come visit with you about your operation and how we can enhance your earning potential. Yep. And that's kind of, you know, all of our goals is like I said, really to, you know, how we can help producers be more successful and, and kind of manage that. And um, so I appreciate you guys taking the time. And, and I was going through, you know, you kind of go through different things as you see uh, different things and kind of remind me a little bit of uh, as I was kind of getting prepared for this um, Jim Collins, I think it was in, I can't remember if it's good to great or built the last book talked about the, uh, Stockdale paradox when I thought, and yeah, it kind of reminded me again when he's talking about that, you know, I remember Admiral Stockdale was actually uh, probably most famous being Ross Perot's running mate uh, way back when. Um, but, uh, you know, I thought it was neat because he was, uh, um, you know, Admiral in the Navy was shot down in Vietnam as a pilot and was, I believe, the highest ranking officer in uh, uh, in a prisoner of war camp. But, you know, he says, you cannot never lose faith that you'll prevail in the end. Um, cause he talked about the people that didn't survive the prisoner of war camps were, I'm going to be out by Thanksgiving. I'm going to be out by Christmas, out by Easter, you name it. And then when that didn't happen, that's when they kind of lost hope. And so I think you can never lose that hope that you'll make it. But I think at the same time, he always said you had to be able to confront the brutal facts of your reality, which sometimes I get to be a little too optimistic sometimes, but, uh, you know, I think it's always good to think, you know what, we'll, we'll make it, it'll be okay, but we got to be really, you know, especially in the marketing and, you know, even production all over, you know, this be realistic where we're at and, and, you know, make the best, best decisions we can at the best time. So with that, I thank you guys uh, for joining with us and helping us. And uh, like I said, if somebody needs uh, somebody to talk to you, Walt's, um, we've had good luck with Walt and learned a lot from him and Kevin over the years. So uh, with that, you guys have a great day, and uh, we'll work on producing the next one. So thank you, everybody. Yeah.